Hey friends, Ashton here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. I hope you are doing well. Not long ago, a book came across my desk called The Common Rule. It was released in February of this year by Justin Whitmill Early. Uh, he is from Richmond, Virginia, and I can tell you uh, the dialogues he has in both his head and heart are the same dialogues that we have here often at Good, True, and Beautiful. And so I thought, this is a guy whose voice and story we need at the table. And uh, what do you know? He said yes, and he is here joining us today. So Justin, welcome to the conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ashton. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely, man. So um, uh, I, I got a little bit of bio before our call recording began here, but for our listeners that maybe haven't crossed paths with you and your work in the world, um, where do you begin when you kind of unpack who you are, what you do, and uh, what you're up to in the world? That's a great question and one that I actually struggle to answer sometimes. <laughs> Me too. So that makes two of us. <laughs> my, that's right. My overview is that I started my career as a missionary in China alongside my wife. And I was doing that for about four going on five years when a uh, encounter with a political protester on the streets of China changed my calling. Hmm. It was one of those moments where I saw that um, politics and economics influence the lives of real people in a way that I was hoping to influence the lives of real people as a missionary. And I got I felt called um, to sort of be a missionary within those kind of structures. And so that led me to business law. So I went back to the U.S. and went to law school at Georgetown in D.C. And then um, I've, I've been a lawyer ever since, still am. Right on. So you you guys were serving overseas, quote unquote, in the ministry, but you had this moment where you were like, wait a minute, this there's no separation between the sacred and the secular. This whole thing is one big beautiful thing, and you wanted to just kind of shift how you were, uh, whatever, ministry didn't have to be in quotes. It could be real life, skin and bones, contracts, people, business, things like that. That's, that's absolutely true. Yeah. I, I, there were two really important things going on. One was the understanding that ministry happens everywhere, not just in the verbal proclamation of the gospel, even though that's incredibly important and oftentimes the forefront. So yeah, one part was tearing down that divide. Another part was tearing down the foreign divide, as in, I used to think missionaries were people who went someplace that wasn't their home. And in my, in my, moved back to the United States, one of my subsequent realizations was that we need missionaries here in America because the West is not necessarily what you might call a Christian (laughs) place that doesn't need to be evangelized. It it actually needs it a lot and it needs it from a lot of angles. So, you know, my angle is to try to embody the gospel within law and business. But we, I think we all, all believers need to see themselves as uh, a people in exile, not necessarily at home here for a call. Interesting, interesting. So um, there, there was a lot of, as I got into your book, um, so many of, so many authors uh, come to their book ideas after burnout, anxiety, panic, etc. Uh, <laughs> I'm I, not I, as unusual as I'd like to think. It, well, I mean, I'm, I'm working on one myself, and I'm like, isn't it funny how pain and suffering always is the doorway to um, our ahas in life? Um, but uh, so, so talk to me about, I guess, really where, how, where, when, why the common rule was birthed, because um, 
I think this book is a is is your personal reflection on some changes you've made in your life, routine, habits, and things like that. But I, I think you also kind of lay the groundwork to invite people to kind of curate their own common rule, um, their own mm-hmm. way of kind of developing something like this. So talk to me about just how we got here with your whole idea of the common rule. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you hit the nail on the head. Lots of times the Lord, for better or for worse, grabs our attention through suffering. And that was what happened to me. So as I just told you, I came back to the U.S. with a call to serve the Lord within law and business. Um, I did not know it at the time because things were going well at the time. Uh, through law school, um, I graduated at the top of my class at Georgetown. I had my first two sons in law school. Uh, my marriage was going great. In a lot, I got the ideal job that I wanted at an international law firm in Richmond doing mergers and acquisitions. So in a lot of ways, my, I thought my call was going really well. What I didn't really realize at the time, but can see pretty clearly now, is that while the, the house of my life was decorated with this Christian content, the architecture was just like everybody else's. So my schedules, the things I thought about, the places where my, literally my gaze went, my attention went, um, was to all the calendar alerts, all the extra resume activities, all the burning the candle late at night, waking up early, fitting everything in. We, we all in law school, and I think in many, many other places, so this is not unique to law school, but especially in the kind of the upper echelons of law school, we kind of live with this sense that we actually don't have limitations mm. or that if humans do have limitations, we are the kind of people who have made it to the top and can usurp them. And so we brag about, you know, getting you know, a couple hours of sleep, how busy we are, how much we can get, can get done. And some of it's true. I mean, smart people, we get a lot done, but it always, always catches up because as it turns out, we are creatures with limitations and it caught up with me in a really shocking way. It was a couple months into my new job. Um, I just woke up in the middle of the night randomly one night with this trembling sense of existential panic. I know now it was a panic attack. I had no idea what it was then. And um, I I managed to get back to sleep that night. But the next night it happened again and then started a stretch where for almost 48 hours I couldn't sleep because of shaking and nervousness. And I didn't have anything. I I didn't have any idea why. I mean, things were going well. Um, But it's this sort of like this background. I I think sometimes we don't realize what's going on under the radar. And, um, you know, Compress. I tell a little bit more of the story in the book, but compressing it for here, I, I really crumbled. I came to a place where I was either relying on sleeping pills or alcohol to just get some rest at night. That's how nervous I became. Um, I was getting really concerned about my ability to keep my job. Um, I was having awful, you know, thoughts, kind of the uncontrollable thoughts that you get when you start spiraling and it, it scared me to death. And so I knew something had to change but i was kind of confronted with this weird question of how did the missionary get converted because i came to be the missionary and suddenly i was converted (laughs) to the nervous medicating lawyer and and i can tell you about how the habits came in after that but i'll pause there in case you want to unpack any of that yeah well i mean i i think the background um consciousness subconsciousness the shadow self i mean there's so many different angles we can come at this at um, but mm-hmm. I, I think it's um, true, especially when you're driven 
uh, high D on the disc profile, uh, typically Enneagram threes and eights and sevens. They, um, Mm -hmm. we, it's, I always say my burnout happened when I made an entire decade out of more and more and more and more. And then I figured Mm -hmm. out that I had to learn the lesson of life is actually about more and more about less and less. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, we get there sometimes. And, um, it, but the the thing that I wanted to get into before we get into the nitty gritty of this book is you're big. I, I think this book is about habits. I think this book is about routine. I think this book is about, um, you wrote like one thing that I underlined and I loved this idea, disrupting the unconscious action we take. Um, yes. talk to me about disrupting this unconscious action, because I think that's such a, until there's awareness, like all of this is subconscious, and we're all uh, running yes. a million miles an hour, having panic attacks. Uh, we don't know that we're anxious, but we're yelling at everyone and always frustrated. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's so right. Go ahead. Well, my low point lasted, unfortunately, a really long time. Mm-hmm. It, was, uh, it was it was over a year, yeah. but there was a there was a moment about a year later where my wife and I, in sort of a last ditch effort, decided um, to try living according to some limiting habits and they were um simple things many of which ended up in the book things like i'm not going to check my work email until after i spend some time in the scriptures i'm going to turn my phone off for an hour a day i'm actually going to practice the sabbath um little things and i remember sitting with my friends at a restaurant one night around new year's and asking them to keep me accountable to these little rhythms Mm. but i didn't have a lot of faith in them it was just one more thing to try um and I think I didn't have any that much faith in them because I had no idea at the time how much a couple small, tiny habits can shift, um, not just your routine, but your sense of self, your sense of the soul, your sense of are you loved or not in such extraordinary ways. Because a couple months into them keeping me accountable to these habits, I noticed my life begin to drastically change. And that's when I got really interested not only because I was actually getting better for the first time in like some, you know, 15, 16 months, but I realized, um, you know, when you start introducing some limiting habits, you open yourself, you open your eyes up to all the unconscious habits you had no idea that you had, you know? So, so when you say, I'm not going to check my email until after, um, I've spent some time in the scripture, it just opens your eyes up into I didn't know how badly I wanted my phone in the morning. I didn't know I relied on Mm. it to wake up. I didn't know how scared I was not to send a response. And, and, you know, you can go on and on with these things. And this this was the first big eye-opener to me, just how many under-the-radar subconscious habits were happening that deeply affect our souls. And then secondly, this is where it got really interesting. And it's going to tie back to the missions conversation we had at the beginning. As I started inviting, because my life was drastically changing, I was reading about this, I was researching habits, I was thinking about all this, I started inviting other friends to do it with me. And as they started doing it and having similar experiences, the big aha moment that made me think there's something more than just habits to write about here was realizing that when we divorce our worldview from our habits, um, we assimilate. So we're really smart people with a very Christian worldview who completely assimilate to the modern way of life mm-hmm. in America, which yeah, means yeah. we're not that missionary in exile. We're not someone who's other or like, you know, not at home here, but called to be here. We're just like everybody else with some thoughts in our heads. And I think that falls short of um, the call 
of, of Jesus on our lives to follow him with, you know, our, all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our strength, all of our soul. There's aligning our routines to our habits means that we can suddenly become people who actually do live in exile in our home because we become a different kind of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are mortal after all. Life isn't always up and to the right. You don't have to yes. always be on. You don't always have to produce. Um, yeah, I hear you. Especially when your phone is, you know, you may not be somewhere physically with people, but if you are at home, you can trade stocks. You can check how many followers you have. You can see what your other friend's doing in Mexico. You can, there, you there can, is, there, yeah. you know, there is this background narrative, noise, story, whatever you may call it, um, that now lives in our pockets. And I think that, um, yeah, uh, you're onto something here. Talk to me, um, you, you use this phrase a lot, limiting habits ver- yes. versus like the no limits. I think you wrote no limit, none ever in liturgy, something like that. <laughs> right. there, there's, right. there's uh, you connect, you, you were like habits are liturgical. Habits are liturgies. Habits are these things that we repeat and they form us just in the same way our liturgies do. To, uh, hold my hand on this idea because I had never connected those dots. And um, I love this idea of habitually cultivating uh, things that actually do limit us. Yeah, sure. All right. So I am following in the wake of a lot of other smart people here who have written on this either on a much deeper theological level, for example, James K.A. Smith, or on a much deeper physiological or neurological level, um, Charles Duhigg, The Power of Habit, or James Clear's recent book, Atomic Habits. There's a lot of talk right now about how significant habits are to our brain and to our soul. And on the brain side, the point is just that when habit activity occurs, what happens is our deepest um, part of the brain takes over, the basal ganglia, and that frees up our frontal cortex for higher level thinking. That's how you can drive home, you know, not think about a single turn that you made because you're working over a sticky work problem. The The problem is, you'll read in the neuro- neurology of the psychology, is that, you know, this works backwards too. So there's a reason we can't stop checking our phones or maybe looking at that website or, you know, letting our mind drift because we, we know better in our frontal cortex. But once a habit of swiping up and looking at something is formed, that part of your brain that tells you, no, 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 don't do that, is not really engaged. And so there's this neurological level going on. And then if you read James K. Smith or some of the other um, writers talking about liturgy, what, what you realize is that if you if you get comfortable with the idea that all of life is worship, not just some areas, mm. um, then, then you start to realize that there's a whole realm of practices every day, you know, not just at church, not just in our quiet times, but how we approach the office, how we approach our phones, how we approach our morning routines, where we're often after something, like we're often worshiping something. Yeah. And yeah. here I like to I just like go over my morning routine to show how this was happening in my life. For example, when I was waking up during those uh, years and checking my phone right away, the, I think the liturgical habit going on was, you know, I can miss a time in prayer or in the word, but I can't miss a quick response to my office. Because yeah. if I'm not well regarded in the office, then, you know, who am I? Or kind of with the, the all notifications on always, the habit there was just look at everything as it comes up. I think some of the liturgical habit of worship going on was that good work comes from responding to the most urgent thing. Um, you know, the way to the way to serve my neighbors or coworkers is to stay updated, 
not to do like focused creative work. And what the you asked about the no limits, none ever. Here's where this comes to a point. One of the liturgies of habit going on there was never have any limiting habits. The idea that you should just turn your phone off sometimes or not look at something or slow your schedule down, say no. That was terrifying to me and a lot of other people because I think we have this idea that we are most human when we're most free. Hmm. And so to put a limit on ourselves to say, actually, I'm going to ditch, you know, email for the weekend and just be with my friends or family. We kind of always think, no, 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 that that can't be right because that would that's like limiting myself and I should be free to choose what I want in any moment. I think what we don't realize is that that kind of freedom is actually stultifying because we, we get so decision fatigued and so distracted that we are free to be enslaved by these devices and that act. And this was a huge flip for me, Ashton, when I finally realized that it, it, the way to get to true freedom as we are created for is not by being able to do whatever we want. It was by being able to do what we were made for. And in order to do that, what we are made for, you often need the right limitations, not mm-hmm. no limitations, the right limitations. Wow. And th- thus began, I think my, that's when this clicked from a hobby to, oh, this needs to be written about, this needs to be thought about, what are mm-hmm. the right limitations that we need as disciples of Jesus in America to help us live the way we were made to live? Interesting. So you, th- your aha was, we often think, if you keep my freedom in check, then that means you're going to keep in check my way to contribute, my way to work, my way to produce. But the truth mm-hmm. that you discovered was, no, the more the more freedom is in check, the more capacity has grown to contribute, the more your capacity has grown to truly engage the neighbor. Um, Absolutely, love, yeah. Love and we yourself. see this. Yeah. We see this in so many areas of our life. I mean, if you ask a baseball player, a bodybuilder, a, a mon- marathon runner, uh, you know, even a law school student, you, you intuitively know that in order to excel at something, you need to be disciplined into the right limitations, yep. Yep. practice. And I think it's a weird time that we live in. And I think it's particularly just the ethos of the West, especially in America, that when it comes down to our identity, we throw that idea off. Hmm. We think, what you know, to develop the right identity, we just need to be free to choose and remake ourselves. When actually it works a lot the same way, we need limiting habits, limiting patterns to direct our identity towards the good, the true, and the beautiful. Yeah. Um, we we can't just, yeah, right? We can't just <laughs> think it's going to happen. Um, yeah. You know, and, and of course, for us as believers, that, that means to imitate the life of Christ yeah. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love it. So um, I don't want to steal all the thunder from the book, but I would like to kind of walk through kind of what you came up with and the way you now engage the world. You've basically come up with four daily habits, four weekly habits. Um, Talk to me one by one. First one being this idea, let's do the daily habits. First one is kneeling prayer three times a day. Um, For some people, and I love this, you, you wrote in the book, hey, if you can't kneel, turn your palms upward. If you can't do that, just walk up to a window. I love that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me about cult. I, this is this is a habit of posture, I believe. Like this, this is mm-hmm. a habit of I don't control all the strings in the world. Um, yes. Talk to me about uh, your daily habit of 
three times a day in prayer, typically on your knees. Okay. Love this one. Cause th- this is, this habit is about reframing the day mm-hmm. in love and dependence rather than in a- ambition and power. Let's go. So, and I, I think about this in my job and, and I think anybody, whether you're a stay at home mom, an athlete, lawyer, whatever, you know, we have this sense because we live in the culture we live in that we wake up and it's go time. We need to we need to uh, slay like a mother is a title of a new book about to come out on being a mom or, you know, we need to d- devour the world, just accomplish. And that can start right at the beginning of the day. Now, I work really hard and I, I try to do excellent work. But the idea of framing my day in kneeling prayer is is about, you know, the at morning, noon, like middle of the workday and then evening entering into a posture of dependence to frame all that good work in the idea that who knows, yeah. you know, I, I'm not, in, I'm not in charge. I got a lot of plans for today. I got a lot of things to do. I could get hit by a bus, have another panic attack or, you know, encounter some sticky work problem that I can't win, it, you know, and it's important to, I think, to frame that, that day in this posture of dependence before we go into our, our work. And the kneeling part is really obviously there's nothing magic about it, but there is something really significant about it. Yeah. And that's the idea that it's hard. It's hard to get a hold of the, the mind and the soul sometimes without going through the body. Mm. So, I mean, sometimes you, you have Absolutely. to, you know, sort of tell the body to pay attention yeah. by kneeling or laying yeah. your hands up. There's, there's a reason for all this. And so, um, and, and I, one more, I think dimension to this is that, you know, my days easily become about how much I can do or whether or not I got done what I wanted to do. So just, I think of midday, you know, I usually encounter at some point midday, usually about now, actually, where I'll, I'll start to look at the rest of the day and I realize I just don't have time to do what, yeah. all that I wanted to do. That's right. And I start to, I just start to feel like a failure. I mean, I'm not kidding, Ashton. This is like almost every day. I had Still a to-do now. list. I had these 10 things that were going to get done. Yeah. And now it's not going to happen. And it's not just that it's not going to happen. It's, it's that I genuinely then struggle with thinking it's because I'm just not up yeah. to it. I'm not good enough. Yeah. And so you, taking that moment midday where you start to turn to all that self-condemnation and kneel and pray is another way of saying, you know what this afternoon is not about? Earning my identity. Mm. You know what it is about? Serving my neighbor in love. So let me like kneel and pray and remind myself that what I do get done through the rest of this day is done not for me and so I can feel good about myself but for someone who needs love through my vocation. That's good. That's and, good. and that's a, that's a big part of why I, I think about this as really important as a way to integrate love and service into our work. No doubt. I mean, I can, I can tell you personally, um, it's one thing to have a morning ritual and a habit of whatever it may be, um, whatever prayer practice you may have. It's a whole nother thing to reframe it again after lunch. Um, and then it's, yeah, a, and it's yeah. a whole nother thing to reframe it again before the car pulls into the garage at night and you come home yes. And, yes. and do that. And I think, um, I listen, man, I love this idea of this, this is a practice of posture and, and, and I just, I, I love the habit and the routine, the discipline and the practice of three times a day as we move into our day really does have three stretches, right? It's got that morning grind. It's got the 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 uh, after lunch, and then it's got you know what we do at home at night. And mm-hmm. what you're doing is is you're reframing yourself into um, that beautiful state, um, yes. beautiful posture. Right on. Um, next daily habit. 
one meal with others. Talk to me about this. Yeah, um, food is such an interesting thing right now in our culture, I think, because it's either it's either fashion, you know, we Instagram it or make some <laughs> everything is everything artisanal meal. Yeah, or it's it's like fuel. We just sort of cram something on the oh, go yeah. as we're trying to fit as many things in our day as possible. And it sort of represents the, these two extremes. And for me, the habit of trying to eat at least one meal communally with others is to reframe our, our, our eating selves, not as, you know, machines who just need to stop for a pit stop to get refilled, but as people who actually crave the company and the delights of the table, because we're made not for food alone, we're made for each other. That's good. And, and food in the table is one of the places we encounter each other in community. Um, it's always, I think, usually the most powerful place of community in almost any culture that I know of. And so I think what, what happens in the typical American routine, at least in my, uh, at least in my world, but I don't think I'm that unusual, is that um, you, you can live a highly productive go, go, go life and really miss each other because we don't sit down at the table. So, you know, I've done this stuff at my office just where I decided I'm just going to go to the cafeteria and um, be there mm -hmm. for half an hour, even if nobody joins or go out to coffee and just sit down to put a break in the day and actually, you know, look face to face with my coworkers and talk to them. Or I do it with my family. You know, we have a, um, a dinner routine where I finally and this took me a couple of years um, said, you know what? Everybody can wait from 630 to 7:30. I'm really going to pause work, turn off my phone, have dinner with my family. And, uh, you know, again, small habit completely reframes the feeling of the yeah. day when you really pause to sit down with people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think this is important for our own schedules. But I also just think that as a believing community, I think we need to reclaim the table as the place of community, both for ourselves, but also where neighbors are invited into our community, because that's where once we develop rhythms of the table in our families or our church communities, um, it becomes remarkably inviting and easy to invite the outsider in. And yeah. I think the table is probably the way of evangelism in our modern moment. So let's go. Uh, Bingo. So this is a I big, agree. this is a big one for me because it's not just insular. It's, it's actually very outward. I think. Yeah. 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 That's uh, that's an invitation, right? That's um, yeah. I, I love that idea of um, shifting that into a new form of, sharing the good news. Um, let's begin at the table. Um, mm -hmm. next one, one hour with the phone off. It's pretty simple, but, uh, tell me when, how does this look like for you? What is, what does one hour with the phone off look like? Yeah. Um, what it, it started as, and it still is, is usually I just, when I get home from work, I will kind of do a, a final check-in to make sure no client has any last minute emergency. And sometimes they do and I'll keep my phone on. Um, but usually, they don't and i will just turn it off put it in my top dresser drawer and spend that hour or maybe a little more with with my family often eating dinner or wrestling with one of my or all of my four sons <laughs> and uh you know what what is i think what is so significant when people try the common rule this um is is one of the ones that i hear a lot about because i think it has a significant impact for a lot of people you you have to confront your when you turn off your phone like if if Anybody listening, for example, well, they're probably listening on their phone, but if they were to do it right now, <laughs> you actually feel this sense of creeping anxiety, a very real anxiety. Yeah. And I think it comes from the idea of, you know, that limitation, you're unreachable. 
But um, it's the same thing that you feel if you were, let's say, to go to a retreat center and try to do an hour of silence. Yeah. It's the same thing that you feel when you're in a room alone and you don't have a screen. We are really, really scared of being alone with our own mm-hmm. heart, mind, and soul. I, I think it was Pascal who once said, um, all of man's ills stem from his inability to sit alone in a quiet room by himself. <laughs> Something to that effect. I love it. And it's true. Yeah. Like, so... I think we are so addicted to distraction yeah. and this would be a tangent, but like, it's not all our fault. There, there are design tech design issues to blame, but we're not going to go there right now. Well, but we are so addicted. To, go ahead. Yeah. Go well, no, 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 well, I was, I was going to say I, you, you did a part in the book talking about these liturgies connected to our phone and that they're like the liturgies of anger, fear, envy, vanity. Um, and it was, uh, it was so un- enlightening to be like, Oh, that's vanity when I'm stuck in Instagram for 30 minutes. Right, um, right. Or, or could it be envy, right? Seeing all yeah. of the different ways people are doing whatever they're doing in the world. Um, and again, this isn't, uh, you and I aren't sitting here coming at Instagram and saying it's the problem. It's, it's how we end up with our posture in these places. Yeah, yeah. So, so I won't get on a soapbox because it's important to realize our complicity but I do think it's important for the listener to note that we are not in neutral territory. Mm-hmm. There, you know, the, the the tech giants are now, you know, the, the biggest companies on the market. They're replacing the oil companies that, you know, that we that um, the corporations we used to fear. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, know, they know that this is addictive and they know that they can make money off it. And, and we're going to have to wrestle as a human community in the next couple of decades of whether what we think the ethics of that are. But suffice it to say, you know, we are addicted to distraction. And one of the things that we can do about it, if you're not a tech designer, if you're, if you're not an advocate in that space, one of the things you can do about it now is just to introduce, again, some limiting habits to reclaim your heart, soul, your brain space. And one of those is, is turning the phone off. And, and this is the big deal, Ashton, that we rec- we recover presence yeah. when we do that. Yeah. We recover the idea that we can sit alone and that actually silence is radically important that we can sit alone with a you know and just be present with another person across the table and realize that messages arguments words are powerful but outside of embodied presence they they lose almost everything Mm. this is why you never this is why you never are going to convince someone on social media of a new political position ever that's right. It's amazing how much we try. It's never going to happen yeah. because you are not embodied and present with them. And what does happen is you can convince people of remarkable things by entering into relationship with them and walking alongside them. Yeah. Things, for example, like convincing them that there was a man 2000 years ago who was, uh, died and rose again from the grave. Like, like we need presence to do evangelism. We need presence to do discipleship and community. And uh, often it's the constant presence of, of screens that keeps us from being present. So that one hour at the phone off is sort of like a keystone habit. One little thing that changes a lot of big things. No doubt. No doubt. Let's move to these weekly habits. Um, so you've got four things that you do every day. Now you've got four things that you've found keep you in tune, in rhythm, in sync uh, with yourself, your neighbor, and the divine. Next one being one-hour conversation with a friend. So here's a guy, uh, super successful attorney in Richmond, Virginia, putting deals together, uh, 100 emails a day, 50 phone calls a day, four kids, a wife, writing a book, 
what does the one hour conversation with a friend look like for you? Does this, is this typically uh, over lunch in the mornings or is it really, it doesn't really matter when it happens. It's just the essence of the, these types of things help keep us in that rhythm we want to be in. Yeah. Um, it's convenient that you asked today because this morning at 8 AM I met up with my best friend, Steve, and we had coffee and did, and did the one hour of conversation together. And we've been doing this for years. So for me, it, it's a standing coffee gotcha. with my best friend, Steve, where we get together and we, we don't just talk. I mean, we, we talk like we were both talking about how career and work stuff is going, but we're also talking about the struggles that we know each other have, um, the secrets that we only share w- with each other or a small set of other people. I mean, the, we're basically what's happening is we're carving a groove in the week where we say, you know, we're not going to go the default way of our culture of being busy people who used to have friends, we are going to prioritize Mm. just like I prioritize a, you know, maybe a Monday morning meeting with one of my clients. I'm going to prioritize an hour of conversation because friendships sustain us. And we're not going to, we're not going to make it without friendships are the building blocks of community. um, And and conversation are the building blocks of friendship. So this happens all kinds of ways, but, but I, currently in my life, try to prioritize it by that sort of one hour coffee every week with my friend, Steve. Right on. Um, this next one, and I really, really wanted to dive into it. Curate media to four hours. Now you talk in the book about, um, how basically one of the things, at least my big takeaway here was, um, media is not going away. It's not like we're not going to have phones and well I guess we could do without phones and televisions but most of us probably won't um you you kind of talk about one of your practices is like not just showing up to Netflix and hitting what's new like you actually show up turn on Netflix and you're like oh yeah I remember there was a specific show that I wanted to watch and I'm just going to watch that show rather than go down this big rabbit hole binge of eight hours (laughs) of whatever talk to me about this uh curating the media to four hours yeah. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people get scared when they hear the four hours. And so I try to caveat in the book and just every time I talk about it, that this is really much more about curation than it is about hitting a certain hour limit. Yeah. But the idea of curation is that you have to have some limit in order to choose well. Gotcha. We're back to limits, right? I mean, yeah. this is our sub, this is our big theme. So whether it's 10, 15, one, the idea is we need to start, we need a new virtue mm-hmm. for our modern moment. And this is, this is actually this is new. So some, some habits in this book are not new. For example, Sabbath, fasting, community, you know, this is new because stories have never come at us before like they do now. Mm. I mean, stories have always been incredibly powerful and their stories are always one of the deepest ways of worldview formation. You know, give someone a sermon without a story. They'll probably remember almost none of it. Tell someone a good story you might change their life. Mm. And so Netflix, Amazon, HBO, um, even even now, you know, news media and blogs, they're rapidly shifting into streaming stories that come at us. They really deeply shift who we are, what we believe. And um, I just want to suggest that that as a believing community, we need to pick good ones, lest you know, they pick our lives for us. Like if we don't curate our news feed, our media feed, then Netflix and Amazon, Fox News, NPR, they'll curate our life for us. They'll curate what we should believe for us. 
and that's why we're seeing in our modern amendment that the shift towards really loud tribalism because we're, we're actually having uncurated media feeds always looking at the same similar set of things and we're becoming more and more rigid mm-hmm. but it's dangerous mm-hmm. and so there's i think there's a i think there's a, a lot to to think about here um but people should dive into the chapter because this is one of those nuanced habits that yep. Yep. Need, need a lot of thought to get to where I'm trying to go. I agree. I totally agree. Um, next one, fasting for something for 24 hours. Not a new idea, but what have you learned in every week uh, giving up something? Um, and it, and listen, this I, I would assume this doesn't have to be you know, the standards. I'm not going to watch a TV show. I'm not going to eat chocolate. I'm not going to drink today. Uh, you, you know, t- talk to me about how you kind of come across these things that, that you feel maybe some conviction in, Hey, I need to give that up for a day. Yeah. It's, um, I, I like to think of these things as things that aren't bad, you know, like, like food or caffeine or, um, maybe wine or something. It's just the practice of, of, uh, resisting and trying to develop that muscle of resistance as a, as a habit. Um, you know, the Bible you know, Jesus talks about when you fast, he assumes that fasting is a part of the life of the believer. But I think it's very much a lost practice in, in our regular day. And what is what is the typical way of life, especially in America, is, um, you know, we just consume and we mm-hmm. consume a lot. And uh, we, we eat a lot of sugar. We drink a lot of alcohol. We eat tons of food. We are just unused to denying ourselves any pleasure because we typically have the capability to buy any pleasure that we want. And it's the freedom conversation is, again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and th- so this one's just sort of like one of those deeply spiritual practices that reminds us that, um, that's not really how life is. You know, we think we can control our emotions by eating. Nobody says that, yeah. but we do it all the time. Yeah. You know, we eat away our pain. We eat away our sorrow. We eat away our sadness. And sometimes the practice of fasting just sort of leans into it and says, you know what? There's suffering. Yeah. And today I'm going to embrace that or that I can't, as it turns out, I can't control my depression. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to pray about that instead of trying to eat it away or drink it away. Um, there's no magic here. It's just sort of trying to reclaim the idea of fasting as a regular practice for the believer. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and then lastly, Sabbath, not a, uh, not a new idea, but definitely in today's world, um, a foreign idea. And I think, uh, you know, reading this section of the book, my reflections on Sabbath, I think are similar to some of yours. Most of what I battle when it comes to Sabbath is my own restlessness. Um, this, this idea of like, if I'm not producing, who am I? Um, if I didn't leave the cave, kill something and drag it back, what, (laughs) where is, where's my worth? Um, so talk to me about, um, and really, I guess how you and your wife do it. I mean, you guys, uh, I think your, your routine that you've kind of leaned into is begins late on Saturday evening, ends up, uh, finishing late Sunday evening. So you kind of have some space after that. If you do need to prep for Monday, talk to me about what you've learned, uh, in giving yourself a 24 hour window, uh, rather than being a human doing to ground yourself in being a human being. Yeah. Um, what I learn in Sabbath is that I can't have it all. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, yeah. I remind myself that I can't do it all. 
And uh, that that's okay because someone has done it all. Oh, yeah. And his name is Jesus. So that's the big, that's the big, you know, Sabbath, um, I think really rebukes our culture in a way, because when we're in this narrative that we can, we can actually finish everything that we can actually accomplish everything that we want to, um, we become a sort of self-sufficient people who, who thinks that, you know, we actually don't need God to sustain our day to day, week to week. So Sabbath is a practice of sort of reminding our ways of the, the way the, the world actually is. Um, and you'll feel it, right? Cause when you say, I'm not going to work for a day, um, you know, whatever your vocation is, if, whether that's leaving the laundry alone for the day or just staying off email for a day, you'll, you'll have this like, well, if I don't work tomorrow, like it's X is not going to get done. No. Right. Yeah. And that's the point. Yes. X is not going to get done. Um, and that's okay. So that's the deep, that's sort of the, the spiritual revelation. Now it comes through practice, right? So what the, what we do right now is we use Saturday, both as a day to try to have the family together, but also, um, you know, we sort of wrap up the work. So that might be me spending a couple hours on my computer or at the office, or we do a lot of chores on Saturday afternoon with my wife and the kids to try to get ready for Sunday, just to try to get to a, a place where like, all right, it's not going to kill us if, yeah. if X is undone. Right. And then we, we light a candle on Saturday evening because, um, both for us and for our kids and our kids, especially that helps like mark the moment. Um, that, you know, something's happening and then we go do something fun and we hang out as a family. You know, I'm usually hanging out with friends on Saturday night and then we're sleeping in, making a big breakfast, going to the latest surface possible at church Sunday morning to sort of preserve the slow character of worship. And, uh, we eat lunch with my extended family, um, after church. Uh, and that's great because the, the cousins can play and the kids, you know, it, it, the problem with as if you're a parent, you never really get a break. So you can't, yeah, yeah. you know, especially yeah, you a parent can't of Sabbath kids, from parenting. Right, right. It's, <laughs> it's hard. But what you can do is shift um, the character of that. Yeah, or maybe, yeah. you know, I try to do a lot more of the kids stuff if possible on Sunday and let my wife rest a little more, um, you know, query whether she's on the line. She would say that's going well or not. But that's what we <laughs> aim for. <laughs> um, so, the you know what what happens though is you have a different character of a day full of, full of a you know it's a slower pace it, it's not work it's relational it's worshipful and that not only you know reminds us that um that you know this is kind of what we're made for each other and for worship but it also you know refuels you for the week to like then move out into the week again in love instead of in trying to catch up and finish everything yeah and so I think Sabbath is one of the most important things for our productivity, not just our productivity, but for our working for the love of our neighbor. Yeah. And again, not for the justification of our own needy souls. No doubt. No doubt. Well, I can tell you um, one of my favorite things that I've loved about uh, your work is um, you're like in the real world. You're not just a writer that wakes up each day and is like, oh, I wonder what I'm going to write or blog today. Like you're in the grind uh, full-time practicing attorney, dad, you've got friendships, relationships. So I think this book is um, super timely, and I'm really hoping it'll be a great resource for some of our listeners um, to just learn, take some notes out of your book, and uh, see what habits and routines and practices and disciplines they can curate and cultivate in their lives for uh, 
more peace, more rest, more renewal, and so forth. Um, so, man, I'm super grateful that you joined us today. Thank you for this uh, good piece of work that you've given us. For our listeners that want to learn more about you and follow your work, what's the best way they can follow you and what you're doing? Anybody can go to thecommonrule.org and um, there's a, we have like an interactive diagram of the habits there. You can click on them, sort of read up on them. Obviously, the, the book is the best long-form presentation, and you can find that on Amazon. Or you can also, from the website, or find, uh, you know, I have a limited social media presence. I'm there, but um, I'm, I'm not there, you know, a ton. But you, you can find it at, at The Common Rule on Twitter, or uh, you can find it. Instagram is where I try to post how some of this stuff actually happens in our home. It's a little bit more personal, and that's just Justin Whitmore early. You can find it on my website, so. You'll, you'll find the web presence out there and I would love it. You know, people can subscribe, subscribe to the email list and follow along. Um, once in a while, we try to lead people through a season of practicing the common rule. So I, I really see this book and I hope other, hopefully others do too, as sort of a field guide or a manual to practicing it. It's not something just to read. It's something to try. Right on. Absolutely. Our habits, they, uh, they form us. And um, I think this is one of those uh, great books. If you have read like Atomic Habits, Essentialism, uh, all of those mm-hmm. things, th- this is a really good uh, spiritual riff um, off of kind of the, some of those big ideas. So mm-hmm. um, super, super good. Grateful for you, man. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm super grateful for your time and generosity and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you. And thank you for the wonderful questions. This was is fun for me as I hope it was for you. Right on, man. We'll talk soon. All right. Hey, before you go, don't forget to hit subscribe right there on your phone. That's probably where you're listening. Uh, And if you enjoyed this, would you mind leaving us a review? One of the things that we're wanting to do is get this information out to as many people as we can. And we are finding that uh, when people leave good, true, and beautiful reviews, uh, that helps us get this information out more and more to people all across the world. I do not take it lightly uh, that you invite me to ride shotgun with you in your car, Uh, You allow these conversations to be a part of your jogs. You allow these conversations to be a part of the communities and families and businesses that you've been entrusted. Uh, I do not take that lightly at all, and I am thrilled uh, that you have joined us here at this table, at this conversation. There's always a seat left. There's always room for more, uh, and we are just so grateful for you guys joining us here at Good, True, and Beautiful. And as you approach this week, may you pause by the orchid. Listen to the bluebirds sing and be love.